When do we get to fight? That was the sentence spoken to me by a seven-year-old boy right after I had taken his confession of faith. This was in the early days of our church plant in Billings, Montana, about 20 years ago. His, this little boy had been asking questions about being baptized, and his parents called me over to their house, and we had a good conversation, and we're talking about, um, you know, what it means to follow Jesus, and it, it was great. It was a great conversation. And, and he was, boy, his kid was sharp. He knew the answers to the questions I would ask, and he was right there with his answers. And, and it almost kind of seemed like he was kind of hurrying me along a little bit. Huh? Huh? Yeah, you know, and after we finally got to that moment, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Yes. And do you believe he died on the cross in your place for your sins so that you could live forever with him in heaven? Yes. Are you ready to be baptized? Yes. Next thing out of his mouth. When do we get to fight? <laughs> now, at the time, I was almost, you know, late, late 20s, fit, young, right? And I'm like, like with, like with me? Because I'm going to kill you. Like, what... What do, you what do you mean, fight? What are you talking about? And he, he said, no, like at the end, when we fight the devil with Jesus, when is it? And it took a second for all the gears in my head to line up to realize he was talking about Armageddon in Revelation 16. Like he, he what I later found out is that his grandma was one of these end times people. And she had filled his little head with expectations that at the last battle, all the Christians are going to get together with Jesus. And he was itching for a fight. <laughs> he was ready, you know. Which is kind of weird, because when you read Revelation 16, there's not much of a fight. Like, Jesus shows up, game over, right? It's kind of done. Uh, we, we, we get to watch. That's about it, right? Uh, the, some people are absolutely obsessed with this. They, they are obsessed with predicting and getting ready for the apocalypse. And I don't blame them because, hey, end of the world ought to get your attention. Other people are far less interested. Either because they've got kind of a live and let live philosophy about life. Or maybe they think that there's really nothing we can do about it. So why waste valuable time and energy thinking about it? And to be fair, both of them have a point. Right? For a long time, though, I was far closer to the latter camp. People would say stuff like, you know, well, Casey, what's your position on the millennium? And I'd be like, it's the fastest hunk of junk in the galaxy. I'm like, not the millennium falcon, you nerd. Um, like, the millennium in Revelation, are you premillennial or promillennial or what? And I'm like, I, I'm promillennial, I'm for it. Whatever it is, I don't know. That's, I'm panmillennial, I think it'll all pan out in the end. I'm not really worried about that. Um, and I was that way for a long time. You know, it's kind of like, God's going to do what he's going to do. Why worry about it? You know, we got other stuff to deal with. Until recently. And over the last few months, maybe, not even years, I wouldn't even put it plural, year and a half or so, I, it be, maybe, am I alone in this? It feels like history's picking up speed. Anybody else feel that way? Like, it kind of, like, we're going somewhere. And I, I know I've read the studies that as you age, it's, because a single day is a much smaller portion of your life in total, it seems like time passes faster as you get older. There's been science done on this. It makes sense. I get that. I understand that. It's not that. It's legitimately looking at culture. It's listening um, to the news. It's paying attention to my world and feeling like, 
boy, it really seems like we're moving faster, <laughs> right? We're, we're, we're getting closer to this. This is headed somewhere, and I know where it's headed. It's headed toward the apocalypse. We are approaching the apocalypse, and church, let me tell you, that is a very good thing. Thanks for being here today. Appreciate you uh, taking the time to come here and, and be here with us in the room. And for those watching online, thank you for logging in. Appreciate you doing that. A couple things to let you know about. We've got a couple families in our, our church family that are grieving right now. Uh, the Nave family, many of you have known Brother Ray. He went to his eternal reward this past week, and Heidi Turnquist's dad passed away. So can we just, we've got a couple families that are, have lost uh, loved ones. Maybe it's, it's uh, encouraging, for, hopefully, for them to hear a message on uh, Christ's return and, uh, and where this history is all going. Let's, uh, let's take a moment and pray together. God, thank you for today. We're grateful for the freedom that we have to come and gather here in this place in freedom and peace and safety. And, and Lord, I'm just I'm grateful for those um, who, who fought for and defended those rights. Grateful that we have them, and we pray, God, that you'd help us use them. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, God, who, who have to sing quiet or who have to meet in small, secret little groups to, to, to gather together and worship and ask for you to make them strong for their trial. And, um, and pray, God, that just until that great reunion, uh, when we get to meet these uh, brothers and sisters who I would place far closer in, in their discipleship to you than I would put myself, um, that we just, until that day comes, God, we just pray you'd be, be with them in a special way. We also pray for your uh, comfort and peace for the Nave and Turnquist families, Lord, as they uh, grieve uh, the loss of patriarchs. We just uh, ask your blessing on them. God, your word says that you provide comfort to those in grief, uh, that you're with them in a special way. And so we just uh, ask for that, uh, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to open your Bibles to the end. <laughs> uh, we're going to start a series uh, in the book of Revelation today. So open your Bibles to Revelation 1.1. Now I want you to notice two things about what I just said. First of all, the title of the book is Revelation, not Revelations. All right? When you talk about it, get it right. It drives me nuts when I hear Christians. It's literally spelled out. It says, right, there's no S on the end of it, right? Revelation, it's one. John got, there's Revelation all right? Like, if you say it wrong, if I hear you do that, I love you, but I will tackle you in Jesus' name. Like, get it right. Okay? Secondly, notice that I said it's a series in and not a series through. Okay? We do not have enough time to do a series through, especially having spent a few weeks getting ready for this one. <laughs> like, we'll be here till next week on the first three verses. Uh, we're not, you know, not, not going to do that, okay? So, but uh, what I do want to do today and for the next month or so is address what I think are the most important things for, for what you should know and feel and do from this book. And let me tell you very, very carefully, if Revelation, studying it does not affect what you know and feel and do, you're doing it wrong. It, it affects every aspect of our lives, what we know, what we feel, and what we do, head, heart, hands, Okay? See, I think that you need to know that the title of this series is, is a little bit of a play on words, right? Approaching the apocalypse. I, I do believe that history is picking up speed. It, it really does seem like we're headed toward something. <laughs> As Paul said in Romans 13, 11, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It, it's approaching. 
But because so many don't know what to do with this book, I think we should also spend some time talking about how to approach the apocalypse. What's our, what, should, what should our stance be? What should our posture toward this book be? Right? We're going to talk about how to approach the book. The first thing you need to know is that this book is an apocalypse because it says so in the very first verse. Right? Revelation 1.1 says the revelation from Jesus Christ. The word we translate revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. It's, this is the root of our word apocalypse. Okay? The word literally means an unveiling or uncovering. The idea, an apocalypse in the time of Jesus, in the time of John. Now, John wrote this book in exile on the Isle of Patmos, right, which is just off the coast of modern-day Turkey. He's not very far away from the city of Ephesus. He's in, in exile on an island. He's very old. He's in his 90s by this point. He's had a lifetime to reflect on, on Jesus' gospel and his mission, right? So he's had a long time to reflect on this, and the apocalypse was a form of literature that was known and understood in the ancient world. The apocalypse of John, the, the book of Revelation, was not the only apocalypse that they knew and had heard of. This was a, a literary form that was, was known, and it, it means that some secrets are being revealed, some, something's being uncovered, which is deeply ironic because for most Christians, this book is veiled and covered in mystery. And therefore, it's either ignored and or dismissed or in some cases, like my little buddy in Billings, it becomes the whole focus of their life, right? And the whole thing, like, it's just, it's completely, it's totally focused on this book. And I would argue that both, both approaches are wrong. It's, it's wrong for you to ignore it. It's wrong for you to orient everything in your life around it, right? You, as a Christian, your life ought to be focused on the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. That's, that's the orientation of your life. So, so I, I want to keep it in balance, right? How do we approach this apocalypse? You say, well, Casey, <clears throat> what was an apocalypse, okay? It was a literary form. There were, it's basically describing how the world could end, right? And there were lots of different versions of those floating around in Jesus' time and John's time. You're like, how do I even understand this? Well, you know exactly what this is because every time you go to the theater, you see examples of it. Disaster movies, Right? Our, our version of this are disaster movies. Think about all the ones over the last 20 years, right? Independence Day, you know, Interstellar, 2012, Deep Impact, The Day After Tomorrow. It's these movies about where the world ends, right? Or this massive, you know, chaotic upheaval in the world. In the ancient world, they had their version of it, these written forms of it, right? And there are stock standard images and, and structures and, and um, you know, Pictures that were associated with that and symbols. And, and we'll come back to that in a couple weeks, right? But it, this was in its day just as common as disaster movies are for us. The point of all these things was to reveal something about how the world could end. And you need to hear the distinction here. The apocalypses, apocalypses of John's time revealed something about how the world could end. But when the God of the universe gives you one, it tells you something about how the world will end. Big difference. And therefore, we should pay attention. So how do we approach that? How do we approach that? And the first answer I would give, we're going to give five answers to this question, how do we approach the apocalypse? The first answer I would give you is with obedient flexpectation. With obedient flexpectation. Some of you are sitting there going, that's not a word. 
You just made that up. Well, yes. Um, but when you think about it, if you really think about it, every word is a made-up word. Hmm? Yeah, so, um, yes, I did. It's flexible expectation. How do we approach this? Flexible expectation or flexpectation, right? Like, we, we expect this. We anticipate this. History feels like it's picking up steam. But if we're honest, we have to admit this is not the first time history has done that. There have been other times. I didn't have time to get into that today, or this, this really would be like a two-hour sermon. If we tracked out every single time in history when this sense of, we're getting close, has happened, oh my goodness, we'd be here all day. I'm not going to do that. Relax. We'll get you out in time to beat the Baptist to the restaurant. But um, we're, it, it, it's over and over and over again. So we have to be flexible about this. We have to recognize, like, okay, there's been other times in history where this happened, but we need to anticipate it now. All right? This with flexible expectation, with obedient flexpectation. Because here's, here's what I want you to get out of this message today. If you, if you ignore everything else, at least get this, please. Expecting Jesus' imminent return. Imminent means near in time, right? It's, it's close, it's soon. Expecting Jesus' imminent return and obeying him until he comes again blesses us by knowing how to both look for and live for Jesus. Expecting Jesus' return soon and obeying him until he comes blesses us by knowing how to both look for and live for Jesus. See, John does something really significant in this book that the scholars call an inclusio. Okay, it's a structural thing. And I want to show you this today, and maybe you've never noticed this before. It was was revelatory for me to see this. I'm going to use the Latin term inclusio, all right? Let me me show you this word on the screen. So this inclusio here, sometimes you'll see it referred to as inclusion, which is the English translation of this word. But inclusion in English also means um, when you live in a diverse community, making everybody feel welcome, which I'm totally in favor of. That's great, but it's a different thing than what John is doing here. So I'm going to use the Latin term just to disambiguate it so it's not confusing. So an inclusio functions like bookends or brackets to bind what's between it together. And Revelation, the book of Revelation, is one fat honking inclusio. I'm going to show you that today, okay? So what I want to do, we're going to read Revelation 1, 1 to 3, and then I'm going to read Revelation 22, 6 to 13. So if you want to stick your finger in it or something, we'll, we'll go to that in just a second. We're going to read them in sequence, and then I'm going to show them to you in parallel. All right? So look with me at Revelation 1, 1 to 3. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what's, what must soon take place. Now, as we go along on the screen, you're going to notice that these words are, some of these words are color-coded. And what I'm trying to do by color-coding them is show you where in the original language it's, it's the same word, okay? In the original text, in the original Greek text that John wrote, it's the same word that underlies our translation in English, right? So that's the reason for the color-coding. So just pay attention to that as we keep going. To show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed, key word here, blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it 
and take to heart, key phrase there, we'll come back to this, what is written in it because the time is near. All right? That's the beginning. That's how Revelation begins. We're going to skip to the end, and I want you to be paying attention for parallel language. So we'll go all the way. Revelation 22, verse 6. Okay? The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. An angel had been kind of giving John a tour of the new heavens and new earth, new Jerusalem, all that stuff. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servant the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. This is Jesus speaking. Blessed, does it sound familiar? Blessed is the one who keeps, remember that was take to heart the last time. We'll come back to this keeps the words of this prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this scroll because the time is near let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Now Jesus is speaking. He says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they've done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Earlier I told you that expecting Jesus' imminent return and obeying him until he comes again, it blesses us by knowing how to both look for and live for Jesus. This book is a blessing. It is designed to bless you. It's not supposed to scare you or bore you. It's not supposed to intimidate you or dominate you. It's supposed to bless you. Reading it should bless you. But you need to understand that receiving this blessing is not like carrying a lucky rabbit's foot or, or, or rubbing a magic lamp and expecting a genie to come out. It, it's, it's not a magic trick, right? Like, I read this book. Where's my blessing? <laughs> uh, the book. You read it. You, 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 you received the blessing. It, this, this blesses us. In fact, the word that is translated blessing here, it's the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Greek word makarios. It means happy. It means congratulations. And he uses it at the beginning of the book, and he uses it at the end of the book in the same way. Blessed is the one who reads these words. Blessed is the one who reads aloud these words, who hears them, right? He's, God is pronouncing a blessing on you for encountering this. Do not ignore it. Don't be bored by it. Also, don't let it dominate you, right? That, that, that's where we live. We live, we approach this with obedient flexpectation. In order to receive this blessing, we need to take to heart, we'll come back to that, the message in the text. So what is the blessing? Well, this inclusio, remember, like bookends or brackets, has two parts to it, right? Here's the first one. Number one, it's the blessing of anticipation. Blessing of anticipation. Twice... At the beginning of the book, at the end, John says that the return of Jesus is close. Now, bear in mind that he writes this in like, you know, 85, 90, 92, 93, maybe A.D., right? He's an old man by this point. 
And he says it's close. He says it must soon take place. He says Jesus is coming soon. He says it's near, which was one of the most common words in the New Testament to talk about chronological closeness. John wrote this almost 2,000 years ago, which raises the question, what does he mean by near? <laughs> like, was it... It's, it's, a, it's a chronology word. It's not like, there's the Greek word kairos that talks about time in an abstract sense, but this is a chronology word. It's close in time. What's he talking about? I think this is a question that C.S. Lewis both asked and answered in his classic work in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which, by the way, came out 70 years ago this week. In the book, we read about one of the rare moments when Aslan shows up, right? They're on this island. They can't see the inhabitants. They're all invisible, they find the house of this magician, and Lucy finds his, his spell book, and she begins to read a spell that will make invisible things visible. Aslan kind of guides her through that process, and he shows up, and as soon as the day is saved and everybody's okay, he turns to leave. And, and Lucy's sad because Aslan is leaving, and, and he sees her grief, and he says, don't worry, we'll, we'll meet again soon. And Lucy says, Aslan, what, what do you mean by soon? What, what do you call soon? And the great lion says, I call all times soon. For someone who exists outside time, every moment is now. Do you know that when Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sins, he was in that moment because of being God, acting on all time in one moment. All sin for all time was, was dealt with on the cross, past and future. In that one moment. That, that's the way God, God perceives time as a being outside it. God can look at time like you would hold a walnut in your hand. So for God, every moment is now. And God can say that it's near because his perception of time is just different than ours. He says it's near. And I appreciate, I think, C.S. Lewis helping us understand passages like this that help paint the end times in such a near-term sense because it's all near to God. Let me show you a couple parallels that I think illustrate this. Look at, look at chapter 1, verse 1. He says it must soon take place, right? And we see it again at the end. He says, I'm going to show your ser the servants the things that must soon take place. And then the very next verse, look, I'm coming soon, the word translated soon here is the Greek word taxos. It, it describes two points in time that are close together, right? The emphasis is on the relatively brief span of time between them. The word appears eight times in the New Testament, variously translated, but five of the eight, it's translated soon. We also see the word translated near. Look at this in verse 3, right? The time is near, Revelation 1-3. And then again, oh, go back one, oh, there we go. Revelation 22-10, right? The time is near. It's the Greek word engus. And it's a different word, but a similar meaning, right? It's one point in time subsequent to another with an emphasis on how close they are together. What this means, I believe, church, the message for us is that we are supposed to live in a constant state of anticipation that the Lord's return is close. A constant state of, you know, the, the, the Greek word maranatha, come Lord Jesus, right? This, please, today, Lord, <laughs> We're supposed, and, and living in that state is a blessing. That's, that's the thing that I want you to get out of, part of what I want you to get out of this message today. Living with that sense of anticipation is a blessing for you. You're like, Casey, what do you mean? I want to shift the way you think about the way that you wake up every day. 
Because some of you, when you get out of bed in the morning and your feet hits the floor, the first thing through your mind is all the stuff you got to get done. And it comes rushing at you like a wild animal. Oh, I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to do this. And some of you, when you get out of bed in the morning, what comes at you is, I got to check Facebook, and I got to check Twitter, and I got to check the news app, because I got to know what's going on. Some of you, when you get out of bed in the morning, it's a list of everything that hurts. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, my feet, and my back, and my hip, and yeah. And I have kind of, sort of, at 46, reached the point where, like, that's beginning to happen. It's not fun. I, I feel for those of you who are more chronologically advanced. Um, what if, what if the first thought out of your, in your head when your feet hit the floor is, today could be the day? What if the first thought to run through your head in the morning when your feet hit the floor is, today my eyes might see Jesus? Does that change how you order your day? Does that change the priorities that you live with? If the first thought in your head is, today could be the day, right? Let, let me give you the context of Revelation 22. Right? John has just been shown this, this incredible vision of heaven. He's seen the water flowing from the throne of God, the water of the river of life, right? He's got, he's, the angel just told him not to seal up the book. Why? Because it's supposed to be revealed. You're, God's trying to tell you something. He wants you to know this. Well, here's what this says. God is speaking to you, church. If God is speaking to you, don't you want to hear what he has to say? God, the God who inspired the prophets, the text said, oh, I love that phrase. I just spooled on an hour thinking about that. I just want to give you a taste of this today. He says, the God who inspires the prophets has spoken to us. Just think about what that means. The same God who sent fire and water from heaven in response to Elijah's prayers is speaking to you in this book. The same God who raised a dead boy back to life in response to Elisha's prayers is speaking to you in this book. The same God that comforted Daniel the prophet and, and Jeremiah the prophet when they were both put into a pit is speaking to you in this book. The same God who commanded his prophet Hosea to experience the rejection of adultery so that he could preach with grace to a people who had abandoned God is speaking to you in this book. The same God who told Zechariah to preach that the high priest Joshua, Yeshua, would cleanse the sins of his people is speaking to you from this book. The same God who commanded John the Baptist to go into the wilderness to tell the people, better you get ready because he's coming, is speaking to you in this book. This is not a secret. It is not a hidden mystery. It is a clarion trumpet call to battle. It is a war chant. His return is imminent. Get ready, church. Your king is coming soon. I love the way that Alan F. Johnson puts it. He said, imminency describes an event that is possible any day and therefore impossible no day. Today could be the day. I guess what I'm telling you is, the, is this. The blessing of obedience, or excuse me, the blessing of anticipation 
is a warning not to allow the long tail of years between Patmos and the present to diminish your anticipation. Because to do that would be to miss out on a blessing. There's another blessing that you might miss out on. It's the blessing of obedience. Remember, obeying Jesus until he comes again blesses us by knowing how to live for him. And I think one of the real tragedies about the the, the legitimately mind-bending imagery in Revelation is that it can distract us from the moral imperatives in the text. I don't know if you, do you realize how incredibly formational this book is? The book of Revelation ought to shape the way that we live every day. The way that we obey Jesus is shaped profoundly by this book. Some of you are thinking, what? Where in the world are you getting at? This is a roadmap to the end of the world. Well, it is that, but it's more than that. And I would argue maybe that, isn't, that it's, it's chief benefit for the Christian today. Th- this teaches us how to live now. L- let me show you what I mean. Look at the text again. Look at, look at these two verses in parallel. Right? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy. Blessed, we talked about the blessing, right? Are those who hear it and take to heart. The, the, the word that's used there right, is tereo, is the Greek word. It's also used again in Revelation 22, verse 7. I'm coming soon. Blessed, there's the, the parallel, right? Blessed, blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. The word that the NIV used to translate take to heart, and it's the only translation, major English translation that does that. None of the others do. They translate it keep. Not exactly sure why. I think the NIV kind of blew it here, honestly. Because they translate the same word at the end of the book in parallel as keep. Which maybe they just, the translation committee, maybe they just didn't know what to do with it here because how do you keep a prophecy? How do you, this word means obey. Let me show you a couple other charts that will, I think, uh, depict that. So here's the use of the word tereo, right? This is the Greek word that is translated, take to heart in verse 3 and keep in 22.7, right? And this is who uses this word, right? So here we've got, you know, this is John, right? And, and here you've got Revelation, and you've got 1 John. So who uses this word more than anybody else? John, right? The word pops up 72 times in the Bible, 36 of them, or sorry, 71 times, 36 of them are John. And it's translated different ways. Let me show you this second chart. Look at this, right? So here's the word, tereo, generally meaning keep or observe, right? This is how it's translated in NIV. You got keep, kept, obey, right? Held, saved, reserved. You know where take to heart is? It's this one. (laughs) What? I guess here's what I'm saying. This book is designed to tell you how to live today. And there's a blessing that's present in obedience. This book is teaching you, if you'll let it, how to live. And the reason I think that the NIV translators struggle with it is like, how do you, if you only see this as prophetic, if you only see this as a roadmap to the future, how do you obey a prophecy? That doesn't make sense. Ah, but if it's more than that, that's not a problem, is it? I think it is more than that. I know it is. In his 2006 book, Salvation Belongs to the Lord, an introduction to systematic theology, which, believe it or not, sounds way better than it is. <laughs> or it is way better than it sounds, right? You hear that and you go, oh, that's a snoozer. It's actually very, very good. 
uh, Dr. John Frame, who's a professor of systematic theology and philosophy at the Reformed Theological Seminary, wrote this. It's kind of long, but hang with me. He said, in my view, when Scripture tells us about the return of Christ, it doesn't give us this information so that we can put it on a chart and watch the events pass by. That would be catering to our intellectual pride, among other things. Why then does Scripture have so much to say about the last days? So that we can reorder our lives in the light of Jesus' coming. As far as I can see, every Bible passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose. Not to help us develop a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience. I have a lot of respect for Dr. Frame. Now, he and I are not in the same camp theologically. He's Presbyterian, he's Reformed, he's Calvinist. A little bit stunned when he said he was post-millennial. I thought, I didn't think they made those anymore. Um, I'm, I'm none of those things. And, and, and so, I, you know, it was just like, wow. And I, I say that not to put him down. I mean, those are legit. We, we agree on the essentials. Those are non-essential issues. But just so that you know, when, when, when even someone that I don't necessarily agree with on everything is, is saying, yeah, this is what this is for, I think we ought to pay attention. We need to pay attention to this. There are some things that we are expected to obey in the book of Revelation. The seven letters to the seven churches, we're going to talk about that next week. There are clear, explicit moral instructions in the, this is how you should live. It's telling you, this is what you should do. And then, in all this incredible imagery throughout the book of Revelation, from chapters uh, 8 through, through 19, we get these vice and virtue lists. Right? We get mentions of, of good and holy things and bad and wicked things, and there's an implicit moral imperative in those. Right? Listen, when God speaks from his throne and he tells you that people who do X, Y, Z are going to burn forever in hell, you should probably not do X, Y, Z. Conversely, when God speaks from his throne and he tells you that people who do A, B, C will live forever with him in glory undimmed, you should probably do ABC. They're implicit moral imperatives. When, when he talks about those who receive a reward, like I, we sing the swing low, sweet chariot, right? I want to be in the number. I want to be, I'm, I'm going to that group. Because on judgment day, there's two groups, goats and sheep. Which one are you in? Sheep, thank you very much. I do not want to go through the goat door. I have read the end, it's bad. We read this book with an eye to obey what God commands in it. Christian, you are to order your life around the priorities of this book. Holy living, evangelism of the lost, free, being free from the grip of materialism and the fear of death, and generous with your life and witness for God. Listen to me, church. This book is calling you to battle, but it's not Armageddon. It's the battle to conform your life to the image of Christ now. Today, that's the battle. When do we get to fight? Here's the answer, now. You fight the battle now. Because when Jesus comes again, it's game over. We're going to stand there and cheer as our Savior and King takes back what is his. We're not going to fight then, we're going to fight now. So here's how we do that through obedient living to the commands of the one that we long to see, which may very well be sooner than we think.
Did you hear me? Expecting Jesus' imminent return and obeying him until he comes again blesses us by knowing how to both look for and live for Jesus. That is how we approach the apocalypse. And I'll say more about this in coming weeks. I am firmly convinced that history is picking up speed. And like Paul said, our redemption is nearer now than when we first believed. What that means is that today could be the day. Maranatha, Lord Jesus. Until then, we live in anticipation and obedience. And I have to ask, how about you? Are you ready? If he comes again today, are you ready? If you walk out through those glass doors and you hear a trumpet call and the sky splits open, are you ready? You better not walk out of this room unless you're ready. Just a second, we're going to sing an invitation song. If you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, if you've never named him as Savior and Lord and been baptized and received his Holy Spirit in you to wash away your sins, you're going to have an opportunity right now. The water's warm, the, water's warm, the towels are dry, we're ready. Don't, don't walk out of this room without being ready. Maybe you're here today, and like me this week, you needed to repent. You needed to have a time where you told God that you're sorry for not caring about something that he intended for, to be a blessing for you. And even as we sing, in, in your seat, you don't need to come forward, but you need to take a moment and do business with God and say, you gave this to me to bless me, and I didn't care about it, and I'm sorry. And, and I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to care about this, and I'm going to live my life in light of what you're going to do one day. Maybe that's the decision you need to make. Maybe you need prayer for something else. We'd love to pray with you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to sing together a song that, well, there's only one song you could sing after this message. We're going to sing this together. And do you respond as God leads you?